From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Dylan Hall. And I'm Andrea Weeb. And we'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Terra Informer Amanda Rooney and I had the opportunity to read a short collection of poetry by UVic professor Nicholas Bradley called Rain Shadow. Stay tuned to hear some excerpts from the book where Bradley explores the relationship between place and language. But first, here are this week's environmental news headlines. Three northern Inuit communities have been left without a year's worth of supplies after a heavy flow of sea ice blew in from the Arctic. The barge that regularly carries supplies to the communities of Paolotuk, Kuglikshuk, and Cambridge Bay has been stranded at the docks in Tuktoyaktuk. These communities without connections to land have to order their whole year of supplies, from groceries to diapers to office supplies, from one of the few barge companies that operate in the Arctic. The ice is so heavy that more than 700,000 litres of diesel will need to be airlifted to Paolotuk to run their generator, taking 50 or 60 trips. The supplies are being moved to Inuvik, where they can be more easily airlifted on a priority basis. In other news, two Alberta schools receive national praise for reducing their environmental footprint as part of the Greenest Schools in Canada competition. Lacombe Composite High School tied for first place while Westwood Community High School in Fort McMurray was awarded runner-up. Organized by the Canada Green Building Council and the Canada Coalition for Green Schools, the Greenest Schools competition recognizes schools from kindergarten to grade 12 who promote sustainability and environmental awareness in their curriculum, culture, and infrastructure. Lastly, if you live in the Edmonton area, check out Carbon Tax Rebate Weekend on October 12th. The award-winning youth environmental blog, The Green Medium, are hosting this all-ages dry event with the Absurd Collective to celebrate local environmentalism, music, and art. There will be a series of short lectures from climate change leaders in Alberta, as well as live music from The Prototype, Dirty Dev, and The Hedgehog Dilemma, and Catzell. There will also be a bunch of local art on display. The event is taking place at the Sugar Swing Ballroom on October 12th, and doors open at 6pm. Tickets cost $10 at the door. Now sit back and get ready to take in some poetry from Victoria-based poet and educator Nicholas Bradley. Bradley's collection of poetry encourages readers to consider the strange, wonderful, and concerning ways that humans across Western Canada and the Pacific Northwest relate to the places we travel and inhabit. Drivers resume speed, zooming to town at 90 per. 
Gondolas ferry them to new vistas high above the wilderness that data roam. Left behind, listless furballs, bored by scenery, saunter toward forsaken campsites to give garbage cans a desultory mauling. In old paintings, beneficent sheep nuzzle picnicking shepherds. Here, not even clouds are woolly. Okay, uh, my name is Nicholas Bradley, and I live in Victoria, British Columbia, and I am a poet and also a professor of English at the University of Victoria, which means that I teach mostly Canadian literature and American literature, and I have a particular interest in both my creative writing and my scholarly work, as well as my teaching in the Pacific Northwest. So. Most of my, my research and, and much of my writing has a focus on place and, and on the influence of the environment on the literary imagination. That sounds super neat. How did you, um, how did you become kind of interested in, in this like poetry and, and literature and then the relation to like the natural surroundings and the environment? Well, when I was an undergraduate, I knew that I wanted to study more English even after I finished my BA. I was, I was fascinated by literature, but I had no sense really that there was a, a literature from the part of the world that I grew up in. I, I grew up in Victoria and I, I went to university in Vancouver. And despite the, the best efforts of my, my excellent professors in university, I, I had no interest to speak of in Canadian literature. And, and I also had the sense that Canadian literature was something that, if it had happened at all, happened on the prairies, which didn't have much interest to me, or it happened in Toronto or Montreal, where I'd never been. Um, but not too long after that, I, I actually went to Toronto to go to graduate school, and there was something about being in a city which had such an obvious and and exciting literary culture that, that got me a lot more interested in, in the way in which a literature came out of a particular geographical location. And eventually, I, it occurred to me, it was a, a naive realization, but nonetheless, it occurred to me that, that there must be writing from the West Coast and from Western Canada in general. Uh, and of course there was, and there is, and, and so that became a a real fascination of mine and obsession and, um, and and a really powerful realization and and the more I read and, and studied um, the, the more I became interested in, in the ways in which places leave their mark on writers and then also the ways in which writers perceive and, and, and help to invent their places all writers live in particular locations, but they they represent and, and imagine those places in, in a variety of ways. And, and I was really fascinated with um, the, the reciprocal relationship between authors and, and the places they call home. How did you come to poetry? How long have you been writing poetry? Well, I suppose in, in one form or another, since, since I was a student or, or maybe even uh, before university, um, 
but it, it took me a long time, I think, to realize what what writing poetry really involved. And I think that's probably true for a lot of younger writers. It seems appealing to write a poem, but figuring out how how to go about making a poem that anyone else might want to read is a can be a long process. So I would say um, I started writing with a bit more uh, self-awareness in, in my, my mid to late 20s, and, and uh, I've been picking away at it ever since. And, uh, th- this book is, is my first, and um, much of it I wrote in, in the last four or five years, uh, but the ideas in it and, and even some of the lines in it are, are older than that. Uh, they might be you know, 10 years old or a dozen. Yeah, that's always wild to me. I remember Alice Major talking about how long she'd kind of like spent on like building up these poems to put into her book. And I, I don't know much about poetry at all. I have enjoyed reading it over the past summer. I put a little bit more effort into reading it and it's like always just mind boggling how much uh, how much work goes into these kinds of things. Um, and I guess I kind of want to ask you next about, um, so there's four sections to your book. Um, the first section is called The Same Mountain Twice. Then the sec- second section, which I really, really liked, and I like the title of it as well, is called Thisness. And then the third section is Instructions for Travel. And the fourth is Metamorph... Actually, Metamorphoses. Is that... Am I saying it correctly? That, that's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering kind of how... How did you pick these... Uh, these uh, sections to kind of fit your poems into? Well, I should give Alice Major some credit. She, she helped organize the manuscript in, into the sections. Um, it was a bit unruly when it, when it first went to her, and, and she helped um, suggest some ways in, in which the different parts of the book might, might work well as, as different sections. I, I didn't disagree. I mean, she and I didn't, uh, didn't not see eye to eye on this, but, but she really um, helped me see clearly how the, the book might work in, in these four parts. And she was especially interested in um, in trying to draw out the different kinds of voice in, in the poems, in the book. Um, so, so all of that is to say that, uh, that, that she's she deserves the credit or, or maybe the blame for, for some of those uh, decisions, but um, the, the first part of the book um, is, is really about this question of perception that I was trying to describe and uh, what I was calling the, the relationship between a person and place. And then that, that second section, uh, thisness, uh, is, is about the particularities of, of place and, and especially the the strange and, and distinctive qualities that, that I think every place has and, and the difficulty that um, that I have at least in, in trying to uh, represent how, how special each place can be. And then the, the third section comes out of uh, some of my own travels through the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada. Uh, and the last section, Metamorphoses, has to do really with the idea that that everything is in a constant state of change and 
that's a theme that runs through the book. So in some ways, that, that final section is, is getting at some of the concerns that I had with the book as a whole. And in some ways, I think those changes have a, a contemporary resonance. And in some ways, this book is about what seems sometimes to be the end of the world. But it's also more generally about the idea that that everything is in a, a state of flux, even things that we take for granted. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, mountain, the mountain ranges on the horizon or mm-hmm. uh, the one season following another. Um, things that we take as constants are also characterized by change. And, and in these poems, I was really trying to get at that that sense that we live with change all the time. It's ceaseless and, and, it, and our our lives are, are really determined by that sense of change. That's interesting. It kind of relates to a thought. I was going to save this for a little bit later, but I'll say it now. Mm. Um, it relates to this impression that I kind of got um, uh, through reading your book, kind of about like human and nature relationships. Um, I think like I think for myself and probably Dylan as well, it's very. I always think like human re- nature relationships, um, like you kind of think of them uh, like in a negative way, being exposed in an environmental studies program to like all these terrible things that are happening, like the end of the world, like you said. Um, and I was kind of wondering if you, do, do you kind of like relate to, to those feelings um, like about this uh, tendency? Um, and like, did you? I, I should add that mm-hmm. that doesn't come across <clears throat> in your book, which is refreshing in some ways. Mm-hmm. Through, very much have a relationship with place okay. and with mountains and with ocean and bears and everything else that comes up in your book that's not necessarily a negative relationship, but it comes across as almost like a very curious one. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't articulate that that well. Yes, I wanted to say that you really broke down that like that tendency of to view the relationship as negative. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I suppose I'm I'm as worried as the next person about the very real environmental problems that that are, that are affecting and, and will affect all of us. So, um, so I wouldn't want to minimize the the reality of of environmental change, uh, whether that's on a, a global scale or or on local scales. But at the same time, we all live in the world we live in, and and we adjust to the way things are and. One of the things that I want to do in writing about the world that I live in is is pay attention to the way that natural beauty exists, even in what we might think of as as altered or transformed landscapes, and the way in which we we can still have an appreciation for the natural world uh, while we spend most of our lives looking at computers and phones and uh, you know all, all of the peculiarities of, of our own lives I think can have a place in, in writing about nature uh, and, and so I you know I, in a lot of these poems I, I wanted to get outside the human in some way as if that were possible uh, but then also I didn't want to write a, a series of poems that were nostalgic or or overly uh, 
artificial in the sense that they were losing sight of my actual time and place. Um, you know, I, I love to go into the mountains and, and you know, walk on the beach, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of the, um, the, the petrochemical byproducts that I take with me when I do that and uh, the, the gas I burn to get there and, and so on and so on. And so I, I wanted to think about how um, all of these contradictions really characterize the way we, we stand in relation to the, the world outside us. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM on Treaty 6 territory. You can find this episode and others on our website at terrainforma.ca. Now back to our interview with poet Nicholas Bradley, reading selections from his latest book, Rain Shadow. In winter's nick, in the first hours below freezing, an acute clarity, once latent, cuts into sunlight, keening the day as some birds sing C and woodpeckers hammer O. It letters the air with an alphabet of none, making plain what bashful maples mutter. It rings that tune, that tunneling strain. Some ignore the cold that plains the sky, that lightly sings, you will die. I really like that. I really like that last, um, that last, like, you will die part. It really, I don't know. I've, I feel like I've been thinking about death quite a lot recently and about mortality. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know. It's kind of like a, like a nice, like, you know, sometimes death, you, like, people make it seem really scary, and it made it, I was like, oh, well, I mean, it's winter, That's things die in winter. I, like, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's almost something that really connects us to, it, it's not isolating, I don't feel like a separate individual in my own little bubble of psychology or, or self-interested consumption. I'm like, I'm going to die, I'm going to become part of that again. If that makes yeah, sense. I mean, I, I think... When we talk about nature, we're usually talking about life in some way. Uh, partly what I was trying to do in, in some of these poems, at least, was to think about uh, how absence and nothingness and death and mortality, these are all part of nature, too, of course. And that to go back to something I said before in, in thinking about change as being a characteristic of our world then one of, one of the aspects of change of course is the, the omnipresence of death in our world and, and yeah, that's something I was trying to draw out in some of these poems Ox Redux 
Zephyrus on Zephyr, still weather, last long measure of summer stream, gives way to breeze, and lone bird leaves nest for breath, turns gasp to birth. Puffin, myrrh, dove key, razor bill skid across the buffeted sky, the submerged range of unclaimed spires, the lapis tundra. They come up out of spin, up for air, strike an interval, minor third, imperfect consonants, and pitch onto liquid ice, white horses chafing at wind. As when the last ox died at Eldie, 3rd June, 1844, a briskly pleasant day. So maybe, I guess to give some context, um, this last bit referring to the, the last ox dying, can you kind of explain what, what the significance of that was? Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is a, it's, it's a well-known story, uh, the last of, of the ox. Um, but I was, I was interested in, in just how average that, that day must have been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And in, in all the other ways, and and in in how everything else must have just kept on going the way it always does. And so I was trying to get at some of the the ordinary occurrences in, in the sky and the ocean. And I guess the the idea there is, is simply that we can have singular and cataclysmic and, and even tragic events take place uh, as the rest of the world goes on. And so that that day uh, in 1844 is more or less like every other day. Uh, and it seemed to me that that was a, a good way to try to understand what may be happening today as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think we tend to think that like something when like something tragic or cataclysmic happens uh maybe maybe elsewhere that like we'll somehow kind of like know or it will like feel different or something like that but uh yeah I I really liked it it was kind of I don't know it kind of gave me like a eerie feeling I was like oh my gosh like the last of these birds like died out on this day but but I guess I guess it could have been a briskly pleasant day yeah and and you know, we, we read all the time about the disappearance of, of other species. Uh, and that, that story comes up in the newspaper every now and then. So-and-so has disappeared, or this number of, of species has been lost. And uh, we, we may take note of that when, when we hear about it. And we may even feel badly about it, but uh, life goes on for better or for worse. I'm really interested in in wrapping up here. I've gotten the sense throughout in your writing about other species, other animals, and places too. Um, It's reminded me that being in a lot of science classes, that science writing about animals, about places, is also a story and a representation. Mm -hmm. And... It, it almost, yeah, I get the sense that we can't ever get beyond representing the way things actually are. Um, so I wonder if, that, if that's been a, 
big thing for you in, in writing these poems is thinking about how poetry might represent and, and tell us about place and also construct place and what, yeah, what, what you were doing with those poems in a sense. Well, I, I agree with you that scientific writing is, is another way of, of representing and I hope that my poems are, are in dialogue with scientific writing and, and scientific thinking. Um, I, I see a lot of possible points of, of contact between science and, and poetry along the lines that you're suggesting. But I think more generally, if if my poems help people see the world slightly differently than then they'll have succeeded. Uh, I think I was saying earlier, or trying to say earlier, that the way we see places is is individual and, and idiosyncratic. And one of the really valuable things that, that poetry can do, I think, is to show you the way someone else sees things, whether it's a, a place or a, a grizzly bear or a birthday or a death in the family and so on and and that encounter with someone else's point of view that that ability to, to see things that someone else does is, is really at the heart of, of what poetry is about I think thank you it um, I didn't mean to I, I think actually in some ways science and the writing that I've read in science often presents things as one particular way and one universal way. Mm. And I really appreciated that um, your poetry helped us think about everything as being interpreted through everybody's unique individual way of interpreting the many complexities of the world. Yeah, I I teach, um, uh, or I have taught, two recent summers at the the Banfield Marine Sciences Center on the west coast of Vancouver Island and uh, it's in the summer it's it's mostly marine biology and coastal ecology students up there Um, and then there's a a dozen English majors reading Moby Dick (laughs) and I have to say that's been one of the most rewarding professional experiences I've had and the, the conversations between the people studying literature and the people studying crustaceans are very interesting and um, sometimes a bit difficult to find common ground, but um, at the same time, people come together over places and ideas and, and creatures that they're very interested in and, and seeing how these different perspectives create different kinds of knowledge is, is really interesting to me. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with us and sharing just a small taste of your poetry. Well, yeah. thank you. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I feel like we could like talk for so much longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, ho- I hope we'll have another chance.
That was Amanda Rooney and Dylan Hall in conversation with Nicholas Bradley over his latest collection of poetry called Rain Shadow. We hope you've enjoyed the poetry and the discussion. We've got more episodes about poetry and many other topics and speakers related to the environment and science. Check out our website at terrainforma.ca for all those past episodes. Terra Informa is produced at CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. We'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new story ideas so we can keep reporting on what is important to our listeners. Thanks to the folks who worked on this week's episode, Carter Gorzitza, Hannah Cunningham, Amanda Rooney, Sydney Carbonic, and Sophia Osborne. We've been your hosts, Andrea Weeb, and Dylan Hall. Catch us again next week, right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>